Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, we get an update on the Calder Fire burning near the Lake Tahoe Basin. Then New Yorker journalist Al Press joins us to talk about hidden workers who do the jobs most Americans want done but don't want to think too much about. From the undocumented immigrants who work in industrial slaughterhouses to the remote combat operators who carry out drone attacks, Press finds they bear a psychic and emotional toll from having to witness or even implement morally questionable asks. Press asks us to look at our own role in creating the conditions that put workers in these positions in the first place. Join us. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Cal Fire officials have ordered more evacuations near the Tahoe Basin as the Caldor Fire continues to threaten Lake Tahoe, one of California's natural treasures. Evacuations have been ordered across portions of El Dorado County, southwest of Lake Tahoe, including near Echo Summit. Other communities, like Christmas Valley near Highway 89, have also been asked to prepare to leave. Last night, Barton Memorial Hospital in South Lake Tahoe announced it would evacuate all of its patients. Joining me now, KQED's climate reporter, Ezra David Romero, who is in South Lake Tahoe. Hi, Ezra. Hey there. You know, just a few days ago, we were hearing fire officials say they thought they could stop the Calder Fire's eastward movement. Why this fresh round of evacuation orders and warnings? What, what happened yesterday? Well, the fire leapt over hard-fought containment lines. These were, like, cut with bulldozers, and they were thought to be able to stop the fire. But fires like this create embers, and these embers can go anywhere between a quarter of a mile to a mile ahead of a fire and start new fires. And so that's what happened. Basically, the fire's at about 170,000 acres. They say it's burned almost 470 homes. Um, and it actually fell, the containment levels fell from 19 to 13%. And that's, it's, it's approaching through this drainage in the Sierra Nevada up to this place called Echo Pass. Um, and just over that pass is South Lake Tahoe. Yes, if I'm looking at this map correctly, it looks like all residents on the California side of the Tahoe Basin have been warned to leave as the fire is threatening these mountain towns surrounding the lake. What are firefighters expecting to happen today and over the next few days, Ezra? Well, they're going to do their best to keep it from South Lake Tahoe. I listened to the morning briefing today, and it sounded like they wanted to make an all-out war on making this not reach South Lake Tahoe, but they were very aware that this fire can move very fast. It's in an area where 
Um, it's this deep ravine type place, and then the winds are supposed to be strong, so it's a place the fire can get whipped up and over this area. So that's sort of why they're having everyone leave South Lake Tahoe, because these embers can fly really far, and maybe they'll be far from the fire, but the new fires can start ahead of the fire, extending the fire's reach. Yeah, so you're talking about the winds, the blowing embers. We were hearing yesterday also that there were strained firefighting resources. We know the Calder Fire is the nation's top fighter, firefighting priority right now. At least it's being called that. Can you just put in context for us how unusual it is for a fire to approach Lake Tahoe like this? Well, there hasn't been a big fire like this in Tahoe for a long, long time. There was a fire here in 2007 called the Angora Fire that did burn part of this region, but it's actually not surprising that a fire would happen here. Scientists have been saying for a long time that this area is primed to burn. Like there's 147 million dead trees in the Sierra Nevada, that's Tahoe included. Um, and a lot of these areas haven't burned in a hundred years. Um, and then here in the Lake Tahoe Basin, there is a lot of work that has been done to protect this area, tree thinning, um, prescribed burns. It's possibly one of the places in the Sierra Nevada with the most work done mm. on it because of how many people are here and all the agencies. But when a big mega fire is upon a place like this, a lot of that work, you know, could prove mute. And also, of course, with climate change, more likely to create conditions like this. Ezra, how will communities like Lake Tahoe have to rethink their relationship with fire in the decades to come? Yeah, I would say it's already challenging places like Tahoe. Winters are often shorter, the snow melts earlier, and the threats of wildfires are increasing. You know, this right now is the time when 50,000, 100,000 tourists are here every week. Um, and so it's already changing what happens here in Lake Tahoe. Their tourism economy is suffering because of wildfire and other climate impacts. And that's being felt for the past few years. And all, no one's here right now. All People are leaving in a steady stream. And so the climate impacts plus forest management stuff is all being felt in real time. Well, Ezra, thanks for you being there and for reporting on this. And please stay safe. Thank you. I will. It's KQED's climate reporter, Ezra David Romero, in the South Lake Tahoe area. Joining me now is author and journalist Al Press, who has written a new book that looks at the psychic toll on workers who take certain kinds of jobs from U.S. drone operators and slaughterhouse workers to guards and counselors in America's most notorious prisons. It's titled Dirty Work, Essential Jobs and the Hidden Toll of Inequality in America. Al Press, thanks for being with us. Thank you so much for having me on. I feel like we should start by explaining what you mean by essential workers, because you're not necessarily using the word essential in the way that we've come to think of it in the pandemic context. That's that's right. Um, I think the sort of popular understanding of that term is, you know, delivery drivers or long haul truckers who were doing, um, you know, performing essential functions during the pandemic that it sort of dawned on everyone. Um, are, are necessary to how our society runs. Um, what was interesting to me as, as that conversation was happening is that I'd been thinking for a couple of years about um, another type of uh, work that is necessary to how our society functions, 
um, and that is that is even more hidden. Um, and that is what what I call dirty work. And that term, you know, sort of the colloquial meaning is kind of an unpleasant job. Maybe people think of of a, a garbage worker or or you know someone who just does something unpleasant. But but I have a slightly different meaning. Um, and and what I I define dirty work as um, on a unethical activity that society depends on and tacitly condones, but doesn't want to hear too much about. Um, so you mentioned a few of those things in, in your introduction. If we think about um, you know, the work that goes on on the kill floors of industrial slaughterhouses, very few people want to want to see that up close, and, and indeed we don't see it very often up close. Um, but it is absolutely integral to our um, food system and the American way of life. Um, likewise, with um, things like uh, running the mental health wards in prisons, which um, you know might not um, seem essential to people who who think we we need fewer prisons, we need to shut them down. But but jails and prisons are the largest mental health institutions in our society. And so there's a there's a large story there about how we got there, kind of, you know, in a sense, depending on these institutions to do the dirty work that that could and, and maybe should be done in places like public hospitals and community centers. Can you talk a little bit about Everett Hughes and his 1962 essay, Good People and Dirty Work, because it was a starting point for your book? Yeah, it, it really is the point of departure. So Everett Hughes is a kind of slightly forgotten figure, although he was very well known in his day. He, he was a sociologist at the University of Chicago. Um, he taught some of the most influential sociologists in, in the 20th century, among them Irving Goffman um, and Howard Becker. But uh, Hughes himself uh, wrote this fascinating essay that I came across, and it's called, as you said, Good People and Dirty Work. And it was based on a semester he spent teaching abroad in post-war Germany. He was in Frankfurt uh, just after World War II. And Hughes got uh, in touch with the people he'd known before the war, uh, who he called good people. And maybe that should be in quotes a little bit. But basically, these were people who were not supporters of the Nazi party. They were cosmopolitan. They were you know, professionals, architects, journalists, teachers. Uh, he wanted to, to you know, sort of find out, well, what are they going to say about what just happened, you know, the horrors of the Nazi era that were just perpetrated? And what he found out was that, um, you know, on the one hand, uh, he goes to he goes to a, a, a tea at an architect's house and the architect says to him, well, you know, I'm ashamed for my people whenever I hear about this. Uh, and that's what you'd expect to hear, you know, shame, uh, disavowal. This was terrible. Then later in the same conversation, this architect says, but, you know, the Jews, they were a problem. Uh, and I'm not saying what the Nazis did was right, but but some something had to be done to settle this problem. You know, they were taking all the good jobs. They were, and so there's this kind of double speak that he keeps hearing. On the one hand, you know, I'm ashamed of this. On the other hand, well, the Jews weren't really part of this society, and and, and something had to be done about it. So you you think you you hear that, and you think, okay, so so what he's saying is that a lot of quote unquote good people are, um, you know, have. Ha don't have enough of a problem with the dirty work that was, in a sense, done in their name by the Nazis. Um, uh, and, and, and that's a commentary on Nazi Germany. But Hughes didn't intend the essay that way. He actually wrote the essay. And he, the most interesting part to me is the end where he, he says, you know, this dynamic exists in every society. 
right? There is, there is, there are different forms of dirty work that take place. And a lot of it has what he called an unconscious mandate from the quote unquote good people. So instead of seeing dirty work as something that's separate from all of us, Hughes is saying it's actually connected to us. We, we have to think about the ways that we may be tacitly condone it, don't want to hear too much about it, and end up having it go on, uh, you know, through a kind of apathy. And you also really hammer that point by Hughes' home by focusing on industries that are not marginal industries, like our food uh, system and the slaughterhouses that are part of that, like our prisons, that they're really central to our way of life, AL Press. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. I chose um, you know examples in the book. It's not a comprehensive account of dirty work by any means. I'm, I'm clear about that. But I, I, um, what I do, what I did do was was choose areas of life that um, are are not in any way, you know, marginal to our society. We have built the world's largest prison system, um, the world's largest, you know, including China, including uh, countries we think of as authoritarian. Um, that was a decades-long project. There, there has, without any doubt, been um, you know a shift in recent years, so that you know there's been questioning of that and 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 efforts to 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 decarcerate, to lower sentences, and so forth. But one of the consequences we really haven't grappled with that much uh, that I look at in really in depth is the fact that um, we've turned jails and prisons into de facto mental health asylums uh, with terrible consequences, not only for uh, people with severe mental illnesses who are ending up incarcerated uh, and imprisoned rather than treated, but also for the people who are on the front lines doing the work. And um, you know, maybe I can talk a little bit about what, what those workers go through because because the, the workers are really the focus of the book. Yes, definitely. After the break, I would love for you to tell us about a mental health counselor who worked at a Florida correctional institution um, to tell us about the workers you spoke with who themselves feel like the work they're doing is morally compro compromised and how that affects them. We'll talk more with AL Press after the break. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about the workers who perform society's so-called dirty work, the jobs that the public at large may consider morally tainted, but would rather not think about with A.L. Press, author and journalist of the book Dirty Work, Essential Jobs and the Hidden Toll of Inequality in America. And you, our listeners, are invited to join the conversation if you have any thoughts or questions for A.L. Also, if you have ever felt morally compromised in a job and, and want to tell us how that affected you, you can give us a call at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. You can email us, forum at kqed.org. Al Press, could you tell us about uh, the uh, 
the counselor, the mental health counselor who worked at the Dade Correctional Institution in Florida. Her name was Harriet Kriskowski. She's one of the first people that you feature in your work. And I should actually tell listeners, warn listeners, that her story is very disturbing. Um, but what can you tell us about what she witnessed when she was on the job? Yeah, so Harriet, um, as you said, started working in the mental health ward of a prison in South Florida, not far from Miami. Um, and not long after she started working there, she was hearing uh, the prisoners complain, you know, they're skipping meals. They're not, some of the guards aren't giving me meals. Um, she witnesses some, some verbal abuse. Um, and she, uh, she reports what she's hearing to her supervisor. And her supervisor says to her, uh, well, you know, prisoners make up stories, which I think is, is you know, something often said when, when such complaints arise. Uh, and beyond that, we have to have a good working relationship with security. Um, now that's crucial because of course, Harriet is a woman working in an all male prison. Um, she depends for her own safety on the guards, uh, you know, opening doors for her, being present when she's uh, in the rec yard with say, you know, a dozen or more uh, men. So, um, so she kind of gets this message that she shouldn't say anything. Uh, and then the abuse gets worse and Harriet discovers uh, that some of the prisoners are being effectively tortured um, by, um, by being put in a shower, locked in a scalding shower um, where whose water flow and temperature was controlled by guards from the outside. And the, the temperature of that water was 180 degrees, which is hot enough to brew a cup of tea. And Harriet learns all of this because there is a prisoner named Darren Rainey who doesn't make it out of the shower. And when she first hears this, she thinks, well, maybe he collapsed, maybe he, you know, he had a heart attack. And a nurse tells her, oh, no, no, he, he was locked inside there and effectively murdered. Um, and indeed, Rainey's body, when it was found, was covered in burns, uh, a very, very gruesome death. Now, Harriet, as I've said, um, has been given a message, don't challenge security. And so she feels, you know, very much that that someone needs to report what's going on. This is this is not, um, you know, something you can cover up and just let go. But she doesn't report it herself. And in fact, none of the mental health staff at that prison reported the abuse. The only reason we know that this abuse was happening is that a prisoner there uh, ended up leaking the story to, a, to Julie Brown, a reporter at the Miami Herald, which then published uh, a story and kind of exposed all of this. But I got interested in Harriet's story and in the stories of these people who like her, who are working in this incredibly moral, morally compromising situation. On the one hand, they have a duty to protect their patients from harm and to, um, to help them, to try to help them. On, on the other hand, they're beholden to security. So they have what's called a dual loyalty. And often what ends up happening is they end up feeling like they're accomplices to this system of abuse. Um, and system is really the key here because it's so easy to blame the individuals who don't do more. But I think when readers encounter Harriet and, and read about her story, just as they read other stories in this book, um, it's going to make you question how quickly you judge folks like her for not doing what seems like the obviously right thing from the outside. Um, and Harriet ends up suffering terribly for this. She, she, um, 
she loses her hair, she, she loses her appetite, she falls into a depression, and she's eventually diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder. And this is all because of the role she feels she was playing, the sort of complicity she felt in this system. And um, I should say, you know, again, to go back to essential workers, we've had a national conversation about the physical and the health risks that workers undergo. Uh, my book is about a different set of risks that get far less attention, the psychic, emotional, and moral risks that workers undergo. And I don't feel that we, we talk enough about that. And I also think it's a story of inequality. Yes, because she continued to work there, was even later promoted to staff counselor a few years later. Why did she stay in that job? She stayed in that job because she had to support her family. Um, this was after the Great Recession in, in Florida in 2008, which Florida was hit pretty hard. The entire country was hit hard. Uh, Harriet was getting paid, I think, $12 an hour, but um, she needed the job. And I spoke to several other mental health counselors uh, at that prison who told me the same thing. You know, they had seen other things, um, uh, incidents of abuse, and felt an impulse to say something, but they feared they would be fired. And in fact, there was one mental health staffer named George Mallinckrodt at that prison who did start reporting what he was seeing, yeah. and he got fired. He lost yeah. his job. So this was a very rational concern among the staff. And if you need the money, and, and, and this is the sort of, this is the dilemma, I think, that's, that's really at the heart of, of the book, and in a sense, dirty work and how it's organized in our, in our society. It's not elite psychiatrists who are working at places like Dade, right? It's, it's people like Harriet. Um, these are jobs of last resort. They're, the, the working conditions are really tough. And you're a precarious, you're in a precarious position. And so more often than not, your inclination is to do what you have to do to keep the job. It's interesting, in the case of the prison, you take us through various levels of blame from the prison warden to the head of Florida's Department of Corrections. You even talk about how, of course, guards and even Harriet, to some extent, is not blameless. But what are you asking us to do in terms of apportioning responsibility in this instance, and even looking at ourselves? Yeah, I mean, I think that, um, you know, to go back to what I said earlier about Everett Hughes, he, he, he said, you know, dirty work is not, it, it is not disconnected from us. And I think that what in, in a society where, that has become so unequal as ours has, it's very easy to just ignore this, all of this, to keep it at a distance to, to and, and in, indeed more privileged people, more, more uh, elite Americans, not only don't do these kinds of jobs, they don't see it, right? It's hidden, it's mm -hmm. behind the walls of a prison or it's you know uh, on the kill floor of a slaughterhouse where, where people don't go and cameras don't go. So you're able to just kind of live your life and, and act as though it has no connection to us. I, I am suggesting that um, you know people like Harriet and and the other dirty workers in the book, they are agents of of, of all of us. They are doing things that, um, to some extent, the rest of society has condoned or depends on. Um, you know, there's also a section of the book about the energy industry and the sort of drilling and fracking and of fossil fuels. Uh, there's another example where it, it's it's very easy to blame the folks who you know go find jobs on on oil rigs and you know and fracking. 
Um, but why are it's the demand for the for the you know we we as a society, uh, I think the United States burns close to a quarter of the the fossil fuels in the world. So so the responsibility is shared, um, and I think that the the book is it's not it's not I'm not asking people to feel guilty. I I am asking all of us to in a sense open our eyes um, mm. and see that you know this is you know part of our society now. Do we want it? To be? Should it be? I was struck by a blurb that Rebecca Solnit wrote for your book that says the, that the book is about the brutal industries that prop up American life from our appetite for cheap meat and fossil fuel to mass incarceration to remote killing, though the moral injury impacts the workers first. It belongs to us all. The book is Dirty Work, Essential Jobs and the Hidden Toll of Inequality in America, and we're talking with Eyal Press an author and journalist, and you, our listeners, are with us as well. Let me go to Chris in Oakland. Hi, Chris. Hi, thanks for taking my call. This is so timely. Um, very briefly in the Chronicle this morning, the San Francisco Chronicle, there was an article about some uh, serious prison abuse. I think it was in Ohio that broke my heart. Um, I am a dear friend, as my ex-boss is a nurse at Santa Rita Prison, um, and she and I have spent evenings crying together. Um, because of the moral situation, she finds herself in there where she is having to sign off on incidents that she knows were prison abuse. And yet she knows that she does not comply with the guard's request. She will be at personal risk. It's a horrible, horrible, horrible moral dilemma for her. She is trying to find another job. But I, I, I just my, my, I just wanted to call in to say here we have in California standard. I can, I would, it's, it's so real. It's so happening. It's so, it's almost. Well, I make a quick analogy to, to policemen who have to hold up the blue line of, of people who do bad things in the police job. We have this structure and this infrastructure of people who are supposed to be protecting and serving, and yet the, pe the good people in there are at risk if they do anything about it. So thanks. I just wanted to make that comment. Thank you. Chris, thanks for the comment. Al Press, do you have a reaction? Such a powerful story. And um, one of the things that, that really struck me, see the, the conversation that Chris described having and the tears, um, there are no statistics to record that. Th th this, is, this is an experience that people are having. And yet, you know, we can't look it up in a database. And, and, and as I said before, I'm writing a about inequality, but it's 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 a very difficult form of inequality to capture because my you know there are people like the nurse that was mentioned, like Harriet Priskovsky, like the uh, folks who work in the um, slaughterhouse that I wrote about, um, who suffer these you know psychic effects, these wounds to the spirit in effect, um, and uh, yet we 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 don't hear about them much. They're very personal and very private. And as a, as a consequence, we can kind of gloss over it all and not even see it. And I think it is so, you know, work is not just about earning a paycheck, right? It's also about your dignity. It's also about your self-respect. It's also about how you feel uh, as, a, as a person, as an agent. And, you know, without in any way um, suggesting that people who make compromised decisions are blameless, I think that we really have to think about how we create these structures and these systems where perfectly decent people uh, will make compromised choices and will, will dirty their hands. And, and that's on all of us. 
I want to talk about another worker that you met, this time a person who worked in the U.S.'s drone program for the war in Afghanistan. And I mean, talk about timely, right? It's all that's happening right now, but also just the horrific news we got that a U.S. drone strike against the Islamic State yesterday that was targeting a, a car bomb, I believe, bound for Kabul's airport. It ended up killing civilians, including several small children as, as young as two. And of course, I immediately thought when I saw that piece about reading about the passage, uh, the profile of the counterterrorism analyst at the U.S. military's drone center in Langley, Virginia, named Chris Aaron. Can you tell us about his job and how he approached yeah. it initially? Sure. Um, Chris, you know, Chris Aaron, as you say, was a counterterrorism analyst, and he um, became, in effect, one of the one of our, our earliest uh, drone uh, operators, drone warriors. Um, and in the beginning, he uh, he thought this is helping defend my country from terrorism and making the country safe. He he enlisted after. Um, 9-11, full of idealism, thinking of his grandfather who had served in World War II. Um, and the turning point for him in all of this, strikingly given recent headlines, was a visit he paid to Afghanistan when he was there on the ground. This was years after his initial sort of stint. And all of the areas he thought were the bad guys, the enemies, the, the, the terrorists had been you know, defeated and were gone. It turned out they weren't. It turned out that um, what, what he was told, that, that there was progress, that America was winning, wasn't progress at all. In fact, things were worse uh, several years on than they had been in the beginning. Um, that, that he'd been told a narrative. And, and so disillusionment begins for him there. And shortly after that, Chris has a physical breakdown. He starts to manifest, um, you know, he just has digestive problems and, um, you know, feels weak and listless and, and has all of these sort of manifestations of just unwellness that he's not sure what they are. And as I describe in the book, you know, he eventually comes to, to sort of go back to those drone strikes and, and think about, did, was he, did he really know who was hit? In those strikes, you know, what about the time when they said there was one person that they got, and then there were three caskets in in the funeral? So it's it's the chapter and that whole section of the book is about the kind of moral wounds that come from um, fighting our never-ending wars. And can you talk about how one of the insidious things about it was that drone warfare, maybe up until recently, more with stories like this that are so horrific and tragic like the one that just emerged about the car and the civilians, which among the dead was an aid worker for, I believe, a California charity and a contractor with the U.S. military, that it feels like because it is so one-sided and in many ways very much hidden in terms of who is actually doing it, that it really does scarcely register in the public discourse and may also not even be appreciated for the impact that it has that can be in some ways similar to those in the field. Well, that's right. I mean, I so, you know, uh, it's, it's a different kind of wound or injury. You know, I, I got interested in this initially 
in thinking about how, you know, for veterans returning from the wars in Iraq and, and Afghanistan, um, who were, you know, conventional soldiers, um, they were suffering PTSD, a lot of them, um, because of roadside blasts and these sort of experiences that these near-death experiences that um, create a kind of panic and a fear uh, uh, register. Um, drone operators don't do that, right? They're not on the ground in the same way. So, so something different is going on. And yet within the drone program, we know there are exceptionally high rates of burnout. There are even higher rates of just exposure to visual violence, you know, just, just um, blasts of buildings and, 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 and really just very graphic things that are seen over and over again on a screen. And what does that do? Um, and, and I think that what we're learning is that, you know, the initial sort of assumption that this was just like playing a video game, it's antiseptic, it's quote unquote clean, you know, the, the people will just press the buttons and then go home and not even think about it. Well, I think as a society, we don't think about it very much, but based on, you know, Chris Aaron's story and, and, and some of the other uh, evidence that I cite in the book, the people doing it, it is lodged in, in their minds and, you know, and it creates a kind of emotional and psychic residue. We're talking with A.L. Press, author and journalist. His new book is Dirty Work, Essential Jobs and the Hidden Toll of Inequality in America. We're talking about the workers who perform society's so-called dirty work, the jobs that the public at large may consider morally tainted, questionable, so forth, but would rather not think about. You can give us a call with your thoughts, reactions, or if you want to share a story about ever feeling morally compromised, 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. Is there a job that you held that affected you in similar ways? You can tell us after the break. I'm Mina Kim. This is Forum. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Farm Statewide Hour. We're talking with AL Press author and journalist, uh, contributor to The New Yorker. His new book is Dirty Work, Essential Jobs and the Hidden Toll of Inequality in America. And you, our listeners, are sharing your thoughts. You're emailing us, forum at kqed.org, posting them on Twitter or Facebook. You can always call us, 866-733-6786. Alan writes, I served as a psychiatrist in one of our local county jails for a brief stretch several years ago. Incarceration of the severely mentally ill will continue to be the only option for treatment until we can provide long-term state hospital care. Dirty work gets dirtier when our society refuses to take responsibility and demonstrate its ethical and moral code of conduct. Another one related to Harriet's story uh, in the Florida prison. A listener writes, Florida is a right-to-work state. Those in control have disempowered the workers from using a common voice and being protected when they do. This is all in, quote, our name. Brandon in Foster City is on the line. Brandon, thanks for waiting. Good morning, everyone. Thank you so much for taking my call, and thank you, KQD, for hosting uh, conversations such as this. Um, I wanted to ask your guest if, 
he'd ever seen the film Moving Forward. Uh, it's the third Zeitgeist film because it really it interviews uh, some of the big giants in psychology and anthropology: uh, Robert Sapolsky, uh, Dr. Gabor Mate, Richard Wilkerson, John McMurdy, and basically. Um, it makes an amazing connection between basically human well-being and how important human interconnection is. And um, But basically how really what it boils down to is not our society. I hear that word used in this conversation, but really everybody's not born and to innately be a part of society. But what underpins that is the economic system. Because if you really think about it, what we all have to trade our time, uh, talent, sweat for is money. That's the universal. And uh, really, it's like all this is being boiled down to is, is to not now I'm not just trying to say, oh, it's greed, it's money, but you have to have commerce. And, but there's other ways to do it that don't involve, because right now we have this infallible faith in the profit motive. And I'm just wondering, has, hmm. what I'm first is recommend to your guests, see that film, because it's an amazing tie-in and so many different levels of, uh, <laughs> of um, what you're talking about here. But really, I think the main culprit is that we're running an economic system that is kind of based on that was great for four or five decades after World War II. But I wonder if you've come to question that in in, in your work, and and I would really again encourage you to see moving forward if you uh, uh, after this interview. I'll Brandon, take my answer off the air. Yeah, Thanks. thanks for that. And you certainly have looked at the economic underpinnings of all of this AL press. But what what would you like to say to Brandon? Well, I'm not familiar with the film, but thank you for the reference. Um, I do write in the book about something I, I call, and it's a phrase borrowed from the philosopher Michael Sandel, um, the pressure of economic necessity. Um, and Sandel talks about this in the context of um, who serves in our military. And he, he teaches a course in which he asks his students, you know, would it be right um, to have the rich in the society hire the poor to fight wars for them? Uh, and most students in the class say, no, of course it wouldn't be right. That's, that's unjust. Uh, and then he asks, well, would it be right to have um, a voluntary army as opposed to a draft? And most of the students say, yeah, a, a voluntary army seems like a better thing than a draft. You know, we shouldn't be forced to serve. But then he goes on to suggest that the pressure of economic necessity um, leads less, you know, people with fewer choices and opportunities in our society to enlist disproportionately, right? They going into the military, not for idealistic reasons all the time, but, but often because it's a way out of town or it's a way to get a, an education or to travel or to get a job um, in, in maybe a town where, where the good jobs are, are gone or hard to come by. Uh, and I tell a story in the book that, that very much echoes that. That basic uh, paradigm is one that I think can be applied to dirty work in pretty much every form. Right, so it's this pressure of economic necessity bearing down on some people more than others that will will lead will, will shape who ends up doing this work, and also I should say where this work takes place. Right, so slaughterhouses, prisons, jails, these sort of stigmatized institutions, you don't find them in wealthy, prosperous, you know, uh, gated suburbs. You find them in poorer areas of the country, more remote areas of the country, uh, and that's not an accident because the geography of, of dirty work uh, reflects and reinforces inequality. Can you talk a little bit about the benefit of having a clean conscious, conscience increasingly being a function of privilege? That was a line in your book that I was really struck by because while there are 
as you say, it is predominantly you know, people who do not have a lot of options, people who predominantly lack resources that do this kind of work. There's definitely, there are definitely lines of work where there are plenty of resources <laughs> and white collar jobs that people do that are morally tainted as well. No question. Um, and, and actually in, in one section of the book, um, I talk, I talk about that, you know, bankers and, and actually tech workers uh, increasingly, you know, sounding the alarm at places like Google and, and other companies saying, wait a minute, um, uh, is this just making information more broadly distributed or are we designing spyware? Um, are we, you know, helping uh, countries like China uh, monitor dissidents on the internet? Um, all of those questions are, are engaged in a section of the book called Dirty Tech. Um, but I do think there is a real difference uh, mm -hmm. for, for bankers uh, and for, for software engineers, say, who find themselves in a situation where their job makes them feel compromised. The first difference, uh, it's a really important one, is that um, you know they've got skills that are really valued in our society. And those skills um, can lead them to exercise voice, you know, complaining, uh, either collectively or individually, and, and or to exit, to leave um, the company or the, or the industry um, with more of a cushion with more of an assurance that they will land on their feet than folks like the undocumented immigrants I write about work in slaughterhouses. Um, the second piece of it is that in our society, you know, wealth confers virtue. Um, so if you are successful, uh, look at the bankers after the financial crash of 2008, they did not hang their heads in shame. Uh, as much as some members of the media said they ought to, and some politicians said they ought to, um, they were indignant. You know, why is Congress trying to regulate our industry? This is the most important industry in the country, in the world, um, right? There was this sense of how dare you. Um, and I think that that kind of um, privilege is, uh, is a product of, you know, wealth, power, and, and the sort of financial rewards that accrue to those who do things like, you know, work on Wall Street. Let me go to caller Stacy in Santa Rosa. Hi, Stacy. Hello. What would you like to share? I worked in a poverty school, and I, uh, I was part of the teaching fellows of New York City, and I was started teaching at an older age, and uh, I was shocked at the level of violence happening in the school and the lack of people taking care of it because uh, the principal didn't want the school to have a reputation as, as suspending or, and they hadn't come up with another way of dealing with the violence. Mm. And um, I complained and was told by my friends not to, and she did fire me. Well, I'm sorry that happened to you, Stacy. It sounds like a very traumatic and difficult experience. <laughs> well, the trauma was mostly for the kids. Yes. I used to t be terrified to let them go to lunch because I taught special ed and my kids were uh, violently assaulted on the playground frequently. I mean, so, I, yeah. Stacy, I mean, I, I, yeah, I just if if I can um, just add something 
you know, I don't, I don't write about um, the type of work you did in the book, but I think it's really interesting what you're saying, because if we step back and think of a, a teaching, uh, teaching special ed, um, or for that matter, uh, tending to people with severe mental illnesses or very poor, these are not in and of themselves dirty professions. In fact, we would say these are pretty noble professions. These are, you're, you're trying to help people. You're trying to, you know, make a difference, um, not just earn, earn a buck. Um, but, but, and, and, and yet they do and can become what, what I call dirty work because of the conditions of the work, right? So, so it's not the inherent nature of the job, but rather the conditions it takes place under that can make someone feel compromised, feel um, they, you know, they go home every day wondering how, how can I keep doing this? And, and yet they're doing something that, that in the abstract is, is pretty noble. What helped someone like a, a Chris Aaron? Um, what helped people who were in situations where they felt like the systems, the structure, like Stacy, was creating moral injury? Yeah, I mean, I think that, um, you know, the, one of the most powerful quotes I came across when I was researching um, moral injury uh, came from the psychologist Jonathan Shea, who actually coined the term. And um, he says at the very end of this uh, book, Achilles in Vietnam, that, you know, he wonders about whether, uh, you know, mental health counseling kind of one-on-one -on, -one on the couch is the best way to address this and, and suggests, you know, maybe we ought to communalize it, to find ways to, to sort of, to make it public. And that in a sense is, is what I did with this book um, because what I found with Chris, with Harriet, um, others in the book is that um, these stories were not stories they were invited to talk about. Their experiences, their moral injuries, to, to go back to you know, what Rebecca Solnit said about the book, their moral injuries actually do belong to all of us. But if they're not talking about them, uh, then what happens is the reckoning is, is only personal, right? It's only on their conscience. It's not on anyone else's. And I attended a very uh, moving and, and beautiful ceremony at a VA hospital, um, a medical center at, that I describe at one point in the book where a very different approach uh, in a sense, communalizing moral injury was, was enacted. And if, you, if you'd like, I, I can say a little bit about that. Please. So what happened at that ceremony um, is veterans of America's recent wars were invited to talk about their moral injuries with members of the community. They had each invited people who have not served uh, to sit and listen. And one of the veterans who spoke talked about an airstrike that he'd called in to uh, hit a building where he thought the enemy was. And when the, the smoke cleared, he realized there was no enemy there. There were 36 civilians there. And he tells this story sobbing. Um, and everyone in the room is just deeply, deeply moved and, and, and saddened. And, and the ceremony couldn't, could have ended there with, with this veteran walking away alone. But instead, what happened next is that the members of the audience formed a circle around him and the other veterans and, and basically get chanted in unison that, you know, we share responsibility for the situation that that, that soldier was in and that the other soldiers who had spoken uh, that night 
uh, were in. We share responsibility for, for what they did and for what they didn't do. Um, and it was such a powerful, powerful thing. Um, it was communalizing this and bringing it out in the open and telling the stories so that um, all of us, in a sense, can own you know, stories like that. We're talking with A.R. Press about his new book, Dirty Work, Essential Jobs, and the Hidden Toll of Inequality in America. And you're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. You don't make a lot of policy prescriptions in this book, but one corrective that you do offer is engaging the will to know, as you call it. I believe you also borrowed that term from somebody that you quote in your book. But what I was curious about, and I know you're not a psychologist, A.L., but what have you learned or what have you thought about is behind the barriers in our own minds, the mental filters that we have to block out uncomfortable realizations um, that are yeah. that are driving this? Well, I think we all have them. I have them. And by the way, I should say, this book is not written about to, to say, you know, oh, those good people out there, they, they have mixed feelings about all this, but they actually share responsibility because I'm one of those people. Um, I don't absolve myself in any way. Um, I think that it's natural. We, we don't want to, uh, we wanna avert our eyes when something is discomforting and makes us feel, um, you know, God, you know, how, how can this really be happening? Um, that, that impulse is, is, you know, and, and I guess what, what I came away with in this book, and in some sense, it's a hopeful thing, is that just as the responsibility for dirty work is shared, so too are the possible solutions for dirty work. And, and again, I'm not a policy expert, but I will say that it, it, my conclusion is that, um, you know, we often think about, well, if I, if I just buy organic, humanely raised poultry that isn't made in these, you know, big industrial slaughterhouses, then I'm not complicit in this food system I've kind of heard about that I know mistreats both the animals and the workers. If I, you know, get a hybrid car or an electric vehicle, um, I'm not complicit in the fossil fuel burning. And, and those decisions are important. They're, they're very important. And they, they sort of uh, indicate that, that people are thinking about their impact, the daily impact of their actions, and we all should. But not a lot will change with just individual action like that. In fact, I think the main thing that changes is that the individual feels a little better about themselves. Um, you know, I feel a little better buying the chicken that says humanely raised as opposed to not saying that. But the, the real solutions and the real work of addressing this kind of, you know, the dirty work I described is collective. You know, to go back to the mental health uh, problem, uh, we closed the state public hospitals because they were abusive in the 70s and 80s. Um, but we did not replace them with community services. Uh, in fact, the closures coincided with you know, tax revolts and, and defunding of public health. And as a consequence of that, we have even something even worse, which is jails and prisons serving as these de facto asylums. There's no way to address that individually. Um, there is a way, there certainly is a way to address it collectively, to say as a society, you know what? This is not befitting of us. This country has far too many resources to be criminalizing mental illness and to be leaving people like Darren Rainey vulnerable to such an experience as the one I describe in my book. Um, you know, that's the hope in the book. 
and and I hope that that um, it comes across in in the stories. Well, this listener writes: as a female heavy equipment operator, I was not regularly exposed to the harassment many female blue collar workers are exposed to. What I was exposed to was the destruction of beautiful environments being wrecked for a freeway or a subdivision or a parking lot to be built. Worse for me was the treatment I saw brown workers on the ground enduring. People were bullied because of their appearance and or language. I left the trade to go into education. Your point about the collective work of us all, I think also leaves me with a question which is, I mean, you write about how the people who work in these industries felt stigma, they, they felt sort of a corroded dignity, but I couldn't help but wonder, you know, what happens to a society also that allows these practices, this work to flourish in our name without asking too many questions. And we just have 20 seconds or so left, but uh, yeah, I, I, have an I, I guess that. I would, I would just return to the fact that, uh, that there's real dignity and and even grace uh, in the stories of people like Chris and Harriet. They're very difficult stories. What they go through is is, is wrenching, but um, it's also moving. Uh, it's also um, instructive, and I think we could all learn a lot from them. Well, Al Press, thank you so much for joining us. His book is Dirty Work. My thanks to Susan Britton for producing today's segment and for our listeners for sharing their thoughts and stories. I'm Mina Kim. This is Forum. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Generosity Foundation, and the Bernard Osher Foundation, supporting higher education and the arts. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.